It's an honor to be here. I came down from Vermont, the birthplace of Calvin Coolidge. Uh, our foundation owns the church because I, I, I surmise that Coolidge's didn't really want the state to own the church. <laughs> so we try to take good care of it. I hope you come. One of the things we do there is a varsity economic debate for high schoolers. Uh, as you know, I'm just going to say Coolidge really didn't like Washington very much, so he wasn't particularly present here. When you go about Washington on this trip, you're not going to see a lot of Coolidge statues. I think there's one in the Senate. Um, it's hard to work with someone like Coolidge. He kind of, we say, cut off his nose to spite his face. He didn't want to be in Washington because he didn't believe in uh, presidents were gods. You know, once they left, they were gone. But it would be nice to have a memorial uh, for you to visit to him here because he was the president of restrained government. So forgive me for that aside about my hero, Coolidge. Tom gave me an assignment, which is a very tough one, uh, some of, uh, and I, which is to explain the meaning of America's Great Depression and New Deal and its relevance and to talk a bit about um, misperceptions. So, thank you. Um, don't know how many of you this week saw the New York Times headline, Is Greece Worse Off Than America in the Great Depression? You've probably seen a few like that. Um, the, 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 the intent of such a headline is to compare Greece of 2015 to America in the 20s and 30s. Um, American politicians talk about the Great Depression in the 20s and 30s all the time, too. They, they think about the, that period, too. The default for our politicians is the, more or less the same default as for European Social Democrats. Um, they think about the New Deal, um, what the government did in the 1930s to intervene and help. Um, the, the New Deal is kind of the template, the Rosetta Stone, the model for what all governments do whenever they can when there's a crisis. People thought, uh, our leadership thought of the New Deal in 2008 and 2009. Um, in all cases, if you think of the New Deal, um, you're thinking of intervention, um, stimuli, right? Spending, uh, a bailout is not what they did in the 1930s, but the bailouts of 2008 were in the spirit of the New Deal. Somebody's got to do something. That was the refrain, right? Somebody's got to do, do something. And that there's an uh, imperative of government intervention. Um, and I know, and you know, that thinking about the New Deal will determine what our next president does when he or she becomes president, right? What are they going to do when we get another crisis? Another, or even just another downturn. I don't really like that word crisis, right? Because it, it, it exaggerates often. Um, so for starters, I'm going to rehearse for you the received wisdom what people think happened in the 20s and the 30s. Just to remind you um, what you know all too well, some of you, uh, what you read in school books, what you see on television. Um, start with the 20s. Uh, this was the era of Gatsby. Rich women you know, had longer necklaces than I have, hanging down, pearls, right? 
Um, there was income inequality. It was terrible. Daisy Buchanan ran over Myrtle with a car. Um, false prosperity bubble, right? Bad. Uh, president Coolidge, who is the president, my hero, and President Hoover, who came after him, well, they, the textbooks would have it, blew their chance to help America by permitting excess because they were lazy guys, right? Laissez-faire, do-nothings, kind of dodos. And how do we know this? Um, well, John Kenneth Galbraith told us, right? <laughs> do, you know, do you know who's advising um, the Greeks right now? I'll give you a hint. His name starts with G. Right. His son. Uh, what, what, I, I, I don't like ad hominems, but I'll just say generally, I don't think it's an ad hominem. Galbraiths like to intervene. <laughs> They're interveners. So, um, so there's that connection. Um, or uh, I often heard um, in my work, you know, uh, Coolidge uh, had a sin as president. He left office in 29, and Galbraith reported that uh, Coolidge said in 1929 when the stock market was at 300, up from 100, that stocks were okay and even cheap at current prices. And this quote is, is mentioned because it's supposed to show how stupid Coolidge was there, that there was a bubble, and how could he not see there was a bubble because stocks were up to 300 and then 381, and the dodo president didn't see it. Um, the received idea about the 1930s is um, apocalypse, right, or almost apocalypse in the U.S. economy. Austerity was causing an apocalypse, and Herbert Hoover, now president facing the downturn, um, said uh, America should sell all its islands, like Greece, I'm teasing, should take a lot of steps uh, um, and raise the retirement age and, you know, whatever, whatever you hear about, about Greece. And uh, we also hear in our classes or from our teachers or in books um, that when the new president, Franklin Roosevelt, came, he was the opposite of Hoover and he understood the need for action and he hated austerity and he brought new pension money and he saved the country. And we didn't have to sell our islands even and the, everything was good. We were back on track in our own little EU or something, right? And the government generally intervened and the New Deal took us back from the precipice. And then the war came and the federal government rescue was complete and we spent a lot in the war and that's the proof that Keynesian spending works, right? That's what my mother told me when I was eight years old. Then they spent a lot of money in the war. Spent a lot of money in the war, and everything was all better. Sort of like Goldilocks, right? Um, well, parts of this story are true. There were some rather wild parties on Long Island. <laughs> Still, uh, between what is believed and imagined, and what actually happened, there is a, a, an astounding gap. Um, whole periods, whole recoveries are, are missing from what we get in standard education. Um, some of you have heard me here before, um, maybe 10 years ago, because that's when I first started coming about the Great Depression. I actually work with Jeff Myron on my Great Depression book, The Forgotten Man. Um, the gap between fantasy and reality is wider now than it was 10 years ago. People, um, and I'll leave you to speculate why, and we can talk about that later. Uh, maybe it's Common Core. Maybe it's the way K-12 is taught. Maybe it's that the 20s and the 30s have receded. 
so there are fewer people with personal memory of that period. Uh, maybe it's because of the Ken Burns special on television last fall, which was a lot of hours uh, saying that Roosevelt was a, a superhero um, uh, and sort of a, a crowning of, of, of federal activism. So I'm going to talk now and go through this period for you without a PowerPoint, but just sort of narratively, what I found in, in terms of errors and erroneous memes and themes, 1920 to 1940. And then I'll talk about what we might do about it, and I'm going to leave enough time for you to talk about what we might do about it, too. Uh, there are some steps to take, and I mentioned before, I'm very grateful to Tom and to you for inviting me. Um, you are a mixed audience. Some of you know all this real well, and some of you have never heard it before. So please if, um, ask questions at the end. I'm going to start with the, the early 1920s after World War I. How many of you know there was a Great Depression in the early 1920s? <laughs> right. Miss Professor Wood, maybe? Um, you've read Jim Grant's book. about the, We just gave it the Hayek Prize about, about that depression. So just as a reminder, and for those who are new, in America, in the early 20s, um, well, unemployment rose to 15% in some places, that, more than our unemployment in the recent crash. The stock market fell by 47% in the early 20s. That's almost like 2008, right? Um, and uh, people doubted the future of capitalism. That's definitely true for, for a little bit. Why don't we know about that? Because um, it was so short. The Great Depression of the early 20s wasn't really great, because great actually means long, right, in duration for us. Why was the Great Depression of the 30s great? Because it lasted that whole decade. So this little, this depression was painful, but it was real short. It's the forgotten depression. And uh, I think that's what Mr. Grant calls it. So how did, how did they make the Depression be so short that we don't even know about it, except those of us who are learning Austrian economics? Um, one, they allowed wages to drop. They didn't mess with the labor price. Uh, oh, they cut the government in half, half um, and they hiked the interest rate. By, actually, they doubled the interest rate, 300 basis points. Um, that was very painful. Um, and, and if you would prescribe that for Greece right now, you would be called um, an aust evil austerity fan, right? Uh, but, but it actually worked. It, it, the Depression went away. The economy came back. And um, overall, the 20s, uh, they just don't deserve that Gatsby picture. Um, they are a very lovable decade. Uh, uh, Coolidge, my hero, pushed taxes down to... 25% top marginal rate. That's lower than Ronald Reagan, even, whose top marginal rate was 28. There's some president. Um, they cut interest rates, right? Um, the prosperity was real. Joblessness, usually below 5%. Um, they had deflation sometimes, and everything was still fine. Oh my gosh, how could that be? Grow, um, and uh, you know, I worked on a project called the 4% Growth Project. And you might have heard Jeb Bush talking about 4% growth. But frankly, that's kind of aspirational because if you look at all the charts at CBO and OMB and all the forecasts, what do you see for forecasts for the possibilities of US, US growth? You see 2%, right? So how did they do that? Uh, they had 4%. And they got something neat like the internet, something paradigm-changing even more. They got electricity in the 20s. 
Was there income inequality? You bet. But the important question for us is, did that income inequality matter? Maybe it was good. Um, I don't think so. I think it was good. The general standard improved. People, not only electricity, but cars, radios. So Myrtle Wilson, the character in Great Gatsby, had more things than she might have had before. Um, they did all right. Um, I like to put these things in modern terms. And some of you might go to colleges or work in areas where you're focused on development. You might be working, um, uh, I know a lot of young people are working in India, Pakistan, China, right? Places with trouble. And they, they are trying to discern what is poverty and what is the beginning of working class and what is the rise of India and what is the rise of China and so on. And what is the universal standard for going from poverty to working class or middle class? It's indoor plumbing. That is it. Everyone agrees. There's worldwide consensus, even stronger than on global warming. Once you, right? Once you get a toilet, you are no longer impoverished. What happened in the 1920s? We went from a very small minority of toilets indoors to more than half. I rest my case. <laughs> Great decade. Even on the little things, the historians got it wrong. I work with it extremely precise professor named George Nash, who ought to be teaching at Amherst or Mount Holyoke and isn't, probably because he's too conservative. So Nash is a scholar of Hoover. He's, some of you may know him. He's written a lot of good books about Hoover. And uh, George found something, and he and I wrote about it. Coolidge did not say that the market was fine or cheap in 1929. He said something like that a year earlier when the market was only at 200, not 300, or 381. He was misrepresented by the historians, Coolidge. The most damning quote about him isn't even true. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, the Hoover's, the next error um, in the standard history, the Hoover stereotype is totally wrong. I don't know if you've met Margaret Hoover. She's wonderful, descendant of Herbert Hoover. She's very energetic in a good way. Uh, Hoover uh, was energetic, um, in, in my view, in a less uh, beneficial way. He was a regu regular action figure, Herbert Hoover. Get action. Um, we, we made a cartoon book, and we drew him playing with a medicine ball. He would heave things around. He's sort of like that old coach you knew who said, hustle, hustle, run around, right? Um, very, very active uh, businessman type. Um, and when the 1929 crash came, he, it was an opportunity for a lot of action, like a crashes, and he, he, got, he cheered up. And he did a lot of things. One, he pushed the labor price up. He made, because, he, and you know the theory behind that, if they're better paid, they'll spend money, and that will stimulate the economy, right? Uh, so he pushed the labor price up in two ways. He well, hauled all big business to Washington um, in a room like this and said, you're going to push the labor price up, right? You're, you're going to pay higher, or you're not going to drop wages, even though there's a downturn, because then People will spend with the money, and that will get the economy back. He had what we would call a Keynesian solution. Um, that's the opposite of what they'd done in the early 20s. Um, what else did he do? He raised taxes eventually into the 60% range. Um, he 
blamed business a bit. Uh, it's your fault, guys, right? He didn't like speculators. And he talked a lot about intervention, and he spent. So there's an error. Uh, maybe Hoover is more like Franklin Roosevelt than he is like Calvin Coolidge. Hmm, let, let, let's think about that. Um, and in this crash, this time, did not go away. It's the market stayed down. The market just kept dropping until it was down to 89% uh, from, the, from the high of 29. There are other factors which you've probably studied, monetary, worldwide credit, whatever terms you, you use. Um, but there it was, smooth holly, the great tariff that Hoover signed, uh, all those things. And we're coming into the 30s, and it looks awful. There really is hunger. There is um, a crisis. And just as now, um, the politicians thought as if they were uh, ancestors of Rahm Emanuel. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste, <laughs> right? It's the 1930s, let's do some things. And Roosevelt, um, a very likable man, um, but was also another action figure. Um, and he thought up the New Deal. I talk about it in Forgotten Man quite a bit. The New Deal was a sort of general intervention. We're going to go do everything we can. We're going to experiment like crazy. Um, you want to imagine an Affordable Care Act in every sector of the economy. <laughs> so three Affordable Care Acts. So one in agriculture, one um, in business. That was the National Recovery Administration. And a third for the rest, you know, whatever. Um, what is such an act? Well, a lot of it's regulation, right? Um, in this case, there was also upward pressure on wages again. So following Hoover... Um, President Roosevelt um, mandated basically minimum wages. Mm -hmm. They had something called the Davis-Bacon Act. Who knows what that is? A couple of you, right? That puts upward pressure on wages because it says federal contractors should be paid a certain wage that's determined by a board that likes high wages, basically. Uh, um, they had the Wagner Act in the 1930s. We think we have bad union law now. Our, our law is based off something called Taft-Hartley after, came after World War II. Well, our union law is like a little neutered pussycat compared to their union law, the Wagner Act. The Wagner Act was a big, mean tiger. Uh, it, it, when labor entered the room, when John L. Lewis entered the room, the floor would shake, right? Uh, uh, and it was very intimidating to business. You know, they had sit-down strikes uh, in the 1930s, which a concept I didn't really get when I was in high school reading about it, but what it meant was the workers can occupy the company. They can right, go right into the store and sit there and strike instead of striking just outside. They had the closed shop. You had to join the union if you wanted a job, and that naturally intimidated employers. Why did the country accept it? That, uh, and that's something we've studied a lot and even love it, because Roosevelt figured out a paradigm that still exists. He rewarded groups. Something for labor, something for old people, that was Social Security, something for blacks. He gave an enormous uh, gift to Howard University. Something, if you were in a group, he gave you something. And that, that political template still exists. It's the template of the Democratic Party. And people accepted the New Deal for another reason. Um, it was um, the intimidation by the administration. The administration acts like a deity. I know, you don't know, you don't understand it all. How could you understand monetary policy? You're just a regular person. We're the administration. We went to Princeton or wherever. 
our gurus, our mandarins know better, and the rest of you better just say it's a good idea what we're doing because apocalypse, apocalypse will come if you do not respect us. Oh, you know, and then the populace backs off. They know, they're smarter, and, and, and that certainly also <laughs> obtained in 2008. They must know something we, we don't. That was the reaction in 2008. The government must know. The Fed must know something we, the regular person, doesn't know. And that's another reason voters ex accepted what was going on and even voted for it. They were afraid. Roosevelt said the only thing to fear is fear itself. But it cannot be denied that he also generated fear through his experimentation. He's, and when he'd done quite a bit, ran for re-election in 1936, he said, we haven't done enough. We haven't found our happy valley as a country. Very utopian. So more is coming. And 46 of 48 states voted for him. But that doesn't mean the New Deal was effective. Uh, one of the stories I've told in this room before, and I, I really like it, I hope you, you read about it somewhere, is the story of what this all looked like to a small business. And the small business we selected was ALA Schechter Poultry, which was a wholesale chicken dealer butcher in Brooklyn. Uh, and ALA Schechter Poultry, um, you know, they, their industry was down 20 or 30 percent, and so they, they cut the wages of their employees, and they were, their employees worked extra hours. Um, and they happened to be kosher, so they had their own dietary laws about hygiene and chicken. You know, they couldn't sell a sick chicken. God would get mad at them. Their father was a rabbi. Their father would get mad at them if they sold a sick chicken. This is in the era, by the way, when there were no antibiotics, right? So they're high stakes in... in in, um, you know, it, it, for butchers all around. You had to sell clean meat. And the government came and knocked on the door and said, you're in violation of all of our laws, our new laws, our new rules from the National Recovery Administration, from our Affordable Care Act. You're, you're, you're paying too little. Your prices are too low. What do you mean our prices are too low? Let's think about that again. My prices are too low. Um, wait, my customer might go next door if my prices are higher. No, your prices are too low. Prices should be higher because the economy should be high because then it will get going. That was the philosophy of the NRA. And wages should be higher and hours should be less. And your, one of your chickens is sick. So that case, very famous case, went to the Supreme Court, ALA Schechter Poultry v. NRA. Uh, and what it really was was a case about common sense versus overregulation. And it had that little dash of religion like Hobby Lobby. You know, somehow religion was part of it. And I think that's because religion and the federal government butt heads often, right? That's where the, the tension shows up. Uh, and in, in that case, as, as some of you know, um, that part of the New Deal, that third, was overturned. The Schecters prevailed. Um, they have a very good story to tell, though, and all the testimony is available to read. In short, though, if you look at the whole period, what's going on, the government is not only hassling the individual. Oh, I forgot to mention their chicken was not sick. Their chicken had female trouble. <laughs> For the record. 
they not only hassled the individual, uh, they kind of forgot the individual. And getting at the arrogance, because you'll see it now, too, among politicians, I want to read to you a quote about Felix Frankfurter, the great jurist who, whom Roosevelt appointed to the Supreme Court. And before he was in the Supreme Court, of course, Felix Frankfurter was advising all the New Dealers on programs like the NRA with the chicken. And I love this quote because it, it's, it's a profile of arrogance. The problems of economic life were to Frankfurter matters to be settled in a law office, a courtroom, or around a big labor management bargaining table. These problems were litigious, controversial, not broadly constructive or evolutionary. The government was the protagonist. Its agents were lawyers and commissioners. The antagonists were big corporate lawyers. In the background, were misty principles whom Frankfurter never really knew at first hand and who were chiefly envisaged as concepts in legalistic fencing. These background figures were owners of corporations, managers, workers, and consumers. The arrogance of a center, the, the capital, that disregards what, what's out there, I discovered in this review that other policies did damage. They prosecuted business throughout the 1930s, particularly, perversely, that most promising industry, electricity. So the one industry that could have pulled them out of depression recession, just like energy pulled us out now, that's the one they went after. Um, uh, and the, the sort of superhero of my books, and, and one of them is a cartoon book, is Wendell Wilkie the electricity utilities official who spoke back, who spoke truth to power, and said, you, you can't prosecute this industry to death. Uh, it'll hurt the country if you prosecute the most promising industry to death. It was as if President Obama and all of Washington went after energy, not just because of one pipeline, but in every regard. Um, and uh, that caused the economy to failed to recover. Even um, someone in England noticed, and he said um, uh, to Roosevelt in a, in a public letter, um, about that utility sector, either nationalize them or leave them alone. What's the use of chasing them, the utilities heads, around the lot every other week? And the name of the person who wrote that was John Maynard Keynes. Oh, that Roosevelt is so excessive, said Keynes. Another surprise, right? Um, yeah, Tom asked me to talk about, you know, this is going on and on. 37, 38, depression stays, stays, right? Tom asked me to talk about the, that period, too, um, partly because um, it's one that the Fed warns about now. If we don't keep policy easy, we'll have like 37, 38, a double dip. Oh, and it's true, there was tightening in 37, 38, including a dub, um, for example, a, a doubling of bank reserve requirements that had a disinflationary or deflationary effect. People began to pay social security, that took cash out of the system. Um, but in my analysis, the factor that made the 37, 38 depression so bad, because unemployment went back up to 15%, the stock market went down again, was the uncertainty over the strong mandate that Roosevelt now had. 46 out of 48 states, he can do what he want and wants. And uh, Roosevelt told business, before you met your match, now you've met your master. 
Rolls Wilder Lane didn't like that after whom the corridor out there was named. This is the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who was kind of a free marketeer, a libertarian. And she, a lot of people were writing about this, including Rose. What's Roosevelt doing? Is this a dictatorship? You've heard of the court packing. That was another excess of his. Um, so I, I, in my analysis, it's the uncertainty and the arrogance, along with the monetary and the other factors, that, that made 37, 38 so awful. The, the sort of monocausal emphasis on monetary is misplaced. It's multi-causal. Uh, World War II. The war kind of was a relief, though not for the reasons of spending alone. There's another reason. Roosevelt, that formidable antagonist, um, wasn't really a natural in domestic policy. He didn't really like econ. You know? He didn't really understand it, and he didn't really like it. So, um, but what he was good at was he's a good admiral, good sailor. He knew every crack and cranny of, of the East Coast. Right? You know that he could sail into anywhere with any craft. Um, and he turned kind of with um, glee, but um, also an appropriate, in my view, sense of responsibility to conflict overseas. And he got a new enemy, Adolf Hitler. And he didn't have to think about business anymore, and he turned away from business. And business was very relieved, because instead of being hauled to the White House to be berated for their bad capitalistic practices, they were hauled to the White House to what? Get a contract to build a ship. And that was a shift that encouraged confidence in the United States. So it wasn't just the enormous spending of World War II, which was um, like a shot of OxyContin or, say, five or ten shots of morphine to the economy, the spending of World War II. It was also the, um, the fact that they were no longer being assaulted. The U.S. economy was no longer under the scrutiny of the administration. So if you talk to your child or your parent and they say, um, oh, what about that in World War II? What you say in rebuttal is the real question about World War II and the Great Depression is not how did World War II end the Great Depression. It's why did that gosh darn depression last all the way to World War II? America is an optimistic, self-selected economy. It, all things being equal, it recovers now, right? All things, be, if, 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 if the deterrents aren't too bad, it plays. Comes out, it goes in the sandlot. So that's the thing to, to think about. Um, at Cato, we discuss economics very often. Sometimes there's a debate um, between Milton Friedman, let's imagine his ghost over here, and maybe uh, Murray Rothbard over here, or maybe you know, Mises or somebody, um, or... What actually happened? When was money tight? When was it loose? Was it always money? Um, that's an interesting debate. Um, some of you may have read Paul Johnson on, on Coolidge because he, he maligned, he, uh, he, he has negatives on, on Coolidge and the 20s. These are interesting debates, but they're internal debates, and sometimes they distract us. Uh, the main story uh, most free marketeers, whether they're monetarists or Austrians, agree on, which is, the government intervened too much. It was too arrogant. Public choice people agree with that, too. There's an, a marvelous and accurate consensus on that among, among those who think about it. So, so um, I counsel you to, to take your position, but also not to waste your time on smaller fights, to fight the bigger fight, which is the intervention. Um, squabbling is kind of a waste of time. 
So what, what, just to resume, what are the forces that I noticed? And as I was writing about this, there was scholarship that came along. The upward pressure on labor prices. In the later 30s, um, if you look at a chart of the whole century, you'll see labor prices were high. Um, a professor named Lee O'Hanion is finishing a book about that, but you've probably read his articles maybe in the journal. The labor prices were high in 37, 38, um, especially after you consider um, monetary deflation. That's weird. You have unemployment of 15% and the labor price is high. That's perverse. You remember the song, Nice Work If You Can Get It? The song partly sort of about prostitution, right? Um, but it, it's, I don't think it was an accident that that song came out in 1936, 37, 38, because when you have a high labor price, you have what we hear, hear about from our grandparents. It was okay in the Great Depression if you had a job, but rigid labor market, a lot of people didn't. It was okay if you had a job. That's the penalty that a, a people pays when you raise the labor price above the place where supply and demand meet. They didn't know how high they raised the labor price because of deflation. John L. Lewis didn't even know why he was paying his workers so well. That's always a factor, too, you know, you know the monetary. Um, I'd emphasize another philosopher, along with Friedman or Murray Rothbard or Mises, it's Hayek uh, for explaining the Great Depression. He's familiar here, too. Hi Is this the Hayek Hall? Yeah. Right, so we're happy to be here. Rose Wilder Lane is outside and Hayek's in here. Um, he spoke of the knowledge problem, the, the, the fallacy that a government can know all. Uh, and he spoke of how knowledge is shared and, and transmitted um, on a very local level by, um, by participants who don't always know the whole picture, usually don't. And, and that's how knowledge is transmitted. I think he's on the money for the 1930s. It was the arrogance of the leadership that made the Depression so great. Uh, the heavy-handedness of our own politicians resembles that of the New Dealers. The 2008 rescue with its stimuli and so on was kind of a New Deal light. Um, I don't know why, you know, in the later 30s, even the New Dealers kind of knew they were wrong. I don't, they only did those experiments, that kind of experiment overseas after that. They took their junk and did it in Latin America or in Puerto Rico because they were too ashamed to do New Deal policy uh, in the United States given how it had failed. So, so be aware of that. So why didn't they remember that in 2008? I think it's just the period was, the gap was too long between the Great Depression and now, um, you have to ask. Nothing is new, it's just forgotten, right? What would be a policy that would promote growth in Greece? Well, it might be like the policy of America, the US in 1921, cut the government, raise the interest rates, strong property rights, uh, uh, more respect for the Germans, I'd say. Uh, in my own view, um, what would a policy in the United States for growth entail? A scaling back of all regulatory law, simple lower taxes, again, emulating what we did in 1920-21, uh, massive reduction of the health care law, understanding of property rights, eliminating rather than strengthening minimum wage, making the currency stable. How could that even be possible? I know you're wondering. Um, 
especially when you listen to the Republican candidates who kind of give you the idea that um, if we added in school vouchers and a child credit, the economy would grow at 5%, right? But these are no substitutes for, for true economic policy. Um, my own first step would be to recommend that the candidates take a no bailout pledge because if they don't say anything about 2008, they're just going to act exactly as their predecessors did. They'll act like, right? They'll just repeat it. Um, so it's better, it's better to, to try to push the candidates to, to promise that now and to address this issue now. Um, that's the short term. Uh, what I do and what Tom does, what this university is, is slightly longer term. Um, I work very much in the long term on education. Uh, what we do at the Coolidge Foundation is we host economic debaters, so 16, 17-year-olds can, can argue the story back and forth. We don't even uh, push just one side. We push both sides because the ignorance is more important than that they you know, get what you think is right. This week, we debated privatization of Social Security. Um, we make all of us major commitments to education policy, uh, sometimes that has to be outside the school system because uh, even with all the force of, of, uh, that Cato has behind it or Heritage has behind it, we may not change the school system. So you have to work also outside the school system through sports, through, through homeschoolers and so on. Uh, we work through the sport of debate. That's an alternate education system. Um, I learned about the long term actually from Cato. That's why it's one of my favorite think tanks, because it's always thought long term. Um, a final optimistic point. I don't think these ideas are so hard to sell. Why? Um, most just because most people haven't heard them doesn't mean that most people won't, it, it doesn't mean people won't be receptive to them. Uh, and rebellion is an important force. If you've been told by every teacher you ever had as younger people are that the New Deal was awesome and is the antidote to any crisis, great or, great or small, after a while you begin to suspect that, right? It, there comes a point when you resent being treated as a dupe. And I found that over and over again, uh, talking to college and high school students, they may not subscribe to the other theory, but they know that, that something is wrong if they're being told only one thing. And they begin to rebel out of independence and out of a willingness and desire, a sudden great desire, to form their own opinions. What my work was essentially was a rebellion as well. And rebellion is good. Rebellion is a force to be reckoned with. Um, rebellion is the best way to get to a, a true happy valley of greater freedom. So I'm going to stop there and just say thank you and congratulations on your rebellion, which is coming here. Oh, you have uh, cues. That's great. So tell me which to go first. How about here? Thank you. First of all, uh, I consider Coolidge the last great president. He's a, I'm a big fan of his. The, um, you, you emphasize the arrogance of, and intervention of government and uh, said you thought that it was misplaced to look at monetary policy, but I, I, I would suggest possibly that the ability for 
the government to behave the way it is is what is now strictly a debt-based money that allows government to expand without people recognizing just how much they're mortgaging the future to have it. So really, isn't that monetary policy and the structure of money itself a significant issue? Currently, monetary policy is a significant issue. I agree. You know, what's interesting about the Coolidge period was they thought monetary policy was a significant issue because the U.S. was not really a currency of reserve world leader yet, right? We might be a creditor, but, well, sterling, right? And if we inflated, well, the money might go, gold might go over to Europe, right? So that kept our authorities more virtuous uh, than they would be now when we're the currency of reserve and we have this perverse outcome that when the U.S. does something wrong, more money flows to us. Uh, um, and I agree with you that the current situation is unsustainable. All I'm saying is if you, if you make the monetary argument of there was deflation, I believe, in the early 30s, if you make the monetary argument the main argument, you miss out on the arrogance and the fiscal policy and all, all the other parts. Um, how about we go this way? Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Dan, and in my public high school, we were taught in AP government that without TARP and without the bailout of AIG, we would have had another Great Depression. And we learn in history, you know, on the day we started learning about Herbert Hoover, the teacher started the class by asking who is the worst president of all time. And then the preceding day when we learned about FDR, she started the class by asking who is the best president of all time. And... My suspicion is that kind of the war or the um, the conflict between the right and teachers' unions has led a lot of teachers' unions to kind of push education towards the left. So could you just, what would be like a possible solution to that? And do you think that's a real problem? Your suspicion. Yeah. <laughs> And that's costly because uh, if a young person knows that he will get a B plus instead or she of an A minus, if he writes that Hoover was okay or that Coolidge was better, that's terrible. That's a kind of curtailing of your education and freedom. And it happens. We know it happens, right? They they are leaning on one side. Um, well, one thing is. Uh, we should have a little video cam in every classroom because teachers are, we're all, uh, when there's no video cam, tyrants, right? And when they know there's a camera there, they won't say it so much. They, they have the privacy and authority of the classroom to tell you what they want to. Um, and I've always thought that teachers should think about saying what they say more in public. Uh, and then they would qualify a bit more. And at least, you know, but changing minds is another thing, but qualify a bit more, and then just have alternates in education. That's why we do debate, so the kids can talk about it after school, or argue it, or learn how to argue with their teachers in a productive way. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to be able to change. I don't know who's invested in trying to change Common Core. It's very hard. What I think is not so hard would be to obviate Common Core, to go around it so effectively <laughs> through arts and the media and through social media, whatever, um, that, that people get perspective on Common Core or um, 
left-leaning progressive instruction and how it's in, through alternate sources. So I'm, I, I think it's very hard for a teacher to do that, much harder than it would have been in 1950 when there were only three networks. Uh, eventually, a teacher will be caught out, is what I'm saying. Uh, in, in the 1950s, a war was on. So if you protested, you were kind of disloyal, right? Cold War. Uh, and then there, there were not many sources of information besides the teacher. At three of those networks, that's it. So it's, it's easier now, and it's surprising that they're still so arrogant. And I'm s sorry the teacher uh, did that. Okay. Uh, hi. Uh, when I was, uh, my name's Grant, and when I was in undergrad, I read with some interest uh, Rothbard's America's Great Depression. Uh, and uh, later on, I found out that his uh, book, uh, Conceived in Liberty, is maybe not the most well regarded work of history uh, by historians. So uh, my, my question is, uh, how is Rothbard not necessarily as a economist of the Great Depression, but as a historian of the Great Depression? I, well, I think none of them is perfect, but all have some to offer, and Rothbard more than a lot of them. So I just leave it at that and sometimes disagree with him. I saw Paul Johnson picked up what Rothbard did, Paul Johnson, the great historian, when he did his history of the US, and I felt he shorted Coolidge slightly. Um, but I, I recommend Rothbard. E even more, I recommend a guy, Benjamin Anderson. Ben, uh, he was the sort of, um, it, you know, he was the chief economist of Chase the bank. So he was sort of like, I don't know, John Lipsky, maybe you've heard of, or um, David Malpas, you, you know, one of those ones who's always quoted all the time. And he, he had a bulletin, the Chase Bulletin, and then the Benjamin Anderson Bulletin uh, uh, that went out like this. And it said something like, we don't know whether it's the increase in the labor price or the new intimidation of machine tool companies in Ohio, but one of the two is depressing the stock price. <laughs> That would be one week. Next week, we don't know whether it's the sit-down strike in, I'm making this up, so um, Toledo, or the new, rule, new tax increase, or the talk of the undistributed profits tax that will make business disgorge its money it's trying to save. But one of the two is depressing the stock price, <laughs> or the three. And he, he just went right through the decade as a working economist. And that was all pulled together in a book that's online called Economics and the Public Welfare. And uh, so I think sometimes he was wrong, uh, Anderson, but a, a discerning person can go through all of them. There's no true guru, except for perhaps Hayek, who didn't concern himself with historical details, but just made a, a general point. I, I, I give him the credit to be a true guru. Friedman, a true guru to show that monetary mattered. Um, Hi, I'm Evan. I'm studying finance at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, so my question is about President Hoover. Um, it's pretty well known that he embarked on massive government planning and intervention through the Reconstruction Finance Committee. So I was wondering what you thought the effects of that were on the economy and why he's been labeled as this champion for capitalism. He was a progressive. There's a book called Herbert Hoover, Forgotten Progressive or Hidden Progressive or something like that. Um, and he was also, I mean, some of this is a question of temperament, not philosophy, right? It really is. Hoover was an engineer. Problem, fix it, right? Not Coolidge was uh, more uh, like a, a quiet doctor. First, do no harm. <laughs> for, oh, 
if you see a rock coming down the road, nine times out of the ten, it won't hit you. And both have their weak, right? Nine, well, one rock did hit us. That was World War II, right? But uh, I, who, so Hoover jumped in, and people say that our uh, Reconstruction Finance Corp was a template for a lot of institutions we've had more recently in TARP. Um, okay, uh, it, was, it was basically proto-Keynesian spend, and it will be better make the state spend. It was a little bit federalist, because sometimes I think states were involved. Richard Nixon was that way, too. He'd have spending through states and say that was okay. If states did the spending, it's okay. Randy was talking about this. Spending is spending, and government spending is probably overrated, whether it's done by a county, done by a company, funded, but government-funded, or done by the federal government. So, yes, um, it was okay. I mean, I, what is the analogy that, you, that is the best analogy to draw? I think it's like a patient who is lying on the table, and the heart surgeon comes in, and he's like superstar heart surgeon, cardio man, and, you know, it might be MD Anderson. It might be the Mayo Clinic, right? It might, and uh, the patient is hard is slowing, and he says, I have to operate. And also, please, transfusion. Now, nurse. And okay, so the transfusions come, that's the stimuli, the spending, and he operates, and he saves the life of the patient whose heart is... But what if the patient's problem is endocrine? He needs a little help, maybe the, the transfusion, and a pill. And the whole heart surgery was not necessary, or the, to open the heart. And, and may have killed the patient, you know. But, but that is sort of the way Hoover was, or the way sometimes the Fed can be. They have no respect for any other discipline than their own as the answer to an apparent or real problem. Yeah. Hi, I'm Keith. I'm an intern here. Uh, so you talked about coalition building as part of Roosevelt's uh, winning strategy. Um, it seems that Republicans have been pulled further and further to the entitlements, into the entitlement state and now don't support abolishing Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. So what's a winning coalition, if one exists, that Republicans could build to at least stop the expansion of these entitlement programs, if not, you know, start to roll them back? That's a super important question, and one where I don't know if some of you saw, but I've been engaged in an argument about the Rubio-Lee tax plan, which has an enormous child credit. Child credit is zero economic growth and might be negative because it widens the deficit. Um, I think the best policy... Uh, for coalitions in 2015 is to forget about coalitions and try and figure out what the answer is. And then in election year or after, we build the coalition or they build the coalition. If you craft, um, and that's the problem with Rubio Lee, Senator Lee and Senator Rubio are wonderful guys, but what they've done is put together a plan that reflects all the compromises they feel they have to make right now. So the, the, the voter never gets to see the ideal of what would be good. And um, anyone who suggests, as the Pauls might abolish Social Security, is, is labeled, even um, by other Republicans, as an extreme rash person, not serious. That's incredibly harmful. Um, I, I personally find the fact that there are so many candidates fabulous on the Republican side, because at least some of them will articulate interesting ideas that, that might be useful. Um, and I, Trump's presence is good because it goads the others into trying out different ideas, and there, there's something about Trump's popularity that has to do with the problem you named, which is a Romney problem, too. He tried to plan everything ahead, like Herbert Hoover, and make 73 compromises so that nobody knew what he really stood for except for compromise. And I personally, um, but 
believe that more Democrats than we know also believe that um, some of the programs are wrong. And uh, Social Security, we, we debated Social Security with the kids at the notch because Social Security is by far the easiest to fix. And that plan might be good for someone to just write a Social Security fix. Uh, and someone else too. There are seven ways to reform Social Security that are not particularly painful. Um, but you don't, you don't hear them doing that very often. Uh, so um, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I would just ban the word compromise and coalition this year and, and be as um, accurate and, uh, uh, and if, as possible. And it, feasibility, that's something to address once you're elected, or at least in the primaries. Hi, uh, my name is Bill. I'm a journalism student from uh, Temple University. So, um, oh, I'm a from which university? Temple University. So, um, I think as libertarians, we like to say no to government intervention quite often, and we're very, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people on the left joke that we're the Republicans, especially, are the party of no. Um, as um, of course, it, it's. I mean, we all agree that government intervention is a bad idea. And, but while I'm covering a lot of people on my beat in North Philadelphia, these are poor people, they feel marginalized. Government assistance is sort of, it's a way of life there. It's ingratiated. You know, as we say, well, let's get rid of this government program or let's get rid of that government program, a lot of the pushback there is, well, replace it with what? What strategies have you seen through arguments or through ideas, can really advance the cause of liberty in the face of some of these arguments that are, well, what are we going to replace it with? And one of the things you said was Cato Institute looks at the long term. So how can we get people to see the long term? It's, there, that's a very important question. It's not that hard. And it gets at the, the compromise point that your colleague made. Um, if you cut the capital gains rate to zero, we would have enough growth from all over the world, right? That all those poor people would get jobs in about six months, in about a week. If we cut it to 5%, same thing. So it's not even hard uh, what you do. Or, you know, they, if a politician were here, you know, someone came over in the Senate, he'd say, we're going to reform corporate taxation. OK. Corporate taxes are too high. Uh, this is just, blah, you know. But supposing you cut corporate and capital gains taxes, but particularly capital gains taxes, because that's where the future jobs are, it would be over. Um, what else would, um, you're, you're asking um, not, uh, what else um, would allow um, the, the, the virtue of no to be more evident to people when the interest rate goes up? Right? And so you imagine now with my, my metaphor before, we're all drugged on uh, many transfusions with OxyContin in them. That's what the loose money policy is like. We don't feel a lot of pain, and we don't see a lot of urgency. But eventually, even here, the interest rate can go up. And then the government will have to make choices, or the interest rate will go up even higher. Right? So then even the poor people will see that, because some poor people have loans. <coughs> right. And I mean, another way of asking this, when the Coolidge book came out, um, people said, oh, that's nice. You like Coolidge, but Amity, right? He's not a 2015 person. 
it happened that Margaret Thatcher died right around when, and it was so sad when Coolidge came out, the book. And Margaret Thatcher was just this extreme woman in the Tory party who nobody, the Tory party was the party of get along, right? The, the wets ruled. They want to be kind. They would turn um, until Britain fell into serious economic trouble. And then suddenly Margaret Thatcher was such a heroine. Coolidge is sort of like that too. So uh, no one can wish for economic trouble, but sometimes the periods of trouble bring clarity and show the merit uh, of restraint. So, so that's part of it, that, that we are... Um, I, a drug is the word I would use. The economy is kind of drug. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Brooke Manville. I'm an independent business consultant, and uh, I've been a fan of yours since I used to read your work in the Wall Street Journal. Um, I wanted to just kind of challenge you in the conversation here. I think that the problem of accepting and understanding the kind of views that you write about is much bigger than I think a lot of people here may recognize, and that is the popular narrative is going the other way. And I think the problem is that the kind of views that you're expressing here are swimming upstream against a broadening view of compassion and that there's this kind of compassion industrial complex. The media, the education world, most of the Democratic Party, and there's a kind of conspiracy that, you know, the kinds of things of austerity, um, you know, living within your means, all those other kinds of virtues, you know, those, those are cruel things. That's not part of the fabric of America. That's not who we are. And you know, there's an answer to that around facts and whatnot. I understand that. But from a narrative standpoint, I don't think enough is being done to hold up the other side that, you know, the, the drugs and the medicines that are being administered are actually not compassionate. And I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, oh thank you. I, we all think there's not enough education on the other side. But um, <clears throat> the, it, it, you are correct in that... Um, a moderate Republican is not going to all of a sudden one day open up Milton Friedman and say, free to choose. He doesn't have the incentives to do that. I'm going to privatize. They don't have incentives to do that, that would make them do that. They have incentives to expand the child credit. But one day, there will be competition for the United States. Washington is not going to be the center of, of the epiphany. It's not going to be where the epiphany takes place. The epiphany will take place in the rest of the country when people go away, when we have an economic problem, when another country does better, when people start moving somewhere else. Um, or, you know, and that is very possible. It's happened to, I mean, anyone who's lived in another country, the best speakers at Cato are the ones from the the edge countries, like Estonia, right? Sweden, have you ever seen Carl Bildt talk about the interest rate? Oh, Estonia had a currency board, and, and um, that's because they know their economies are vulnerable. So they have to keep their economy virtuous. It's not because they're better people. It's because they have had the bitter experience of seeing their economy break. Well, our econ that's actually what happened in the 70s, too, in the US. We had the bitter experience of seeing our economy break. And all of a sudden, these ideas, which were completely infeasible to Gunnar Myrdal, um, were, were popular through Reagan. Right? So, so our economy is, is kind of already going through that now. It, it, and it, it doesn't come from 
Washington. It has to come from external events that provoke people. Uh, so what you're saying is we just have to wait till things really break again. Well, until, or until, let's put it in a positive way, a more attractive, something attractive lures away a lot of our talent. Uh, I mean, I mean, or you know, Peter Thiel succeeds, right? They all, or they, all the little, um, some moment of insight will come, probably through the bond market. <laughs> That's what happened to President Clinton, right? You think President Clinton cared about the bond market? What it was. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I agree with you that it's hard, and it's not fun to be the uh, the remnant, as they used to say, to be the marginal group sometimes. Uh, it just seems to be nice. It seems to me to be nice if one could speed that up and not wait for the crisis, or right? Wait, or, I, wait, or wait for the periphery to show the way. <laughs> I, I'm John. I'm from. Uh, I'm in high school. I was wondering. From of high school. High school. <laughs> high school where? Uh, in West Virginia. I was uh, wondering of the current presidential candidates, who you think is most like FDR, and who you think is most like. Coolidge. Oh, I can't because I, I, I'm, I'm Coolidge is the only person I'm for. <laughs> I'm Jerry, and I'm a, a retired physician, and I am not as worried about right now as I am about my grandchildren. And when I look at our education system, especially in the metropolitan areas, uh, and where we're graduating in Washington, Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, Baltimore. anywhere between 38 and 50% of our children from high school. And when those 50% do math and read at an eighth grade level, and that number is growing and growing, how can we develop a middle class? Because without a middle class, I don't think we can have a democracy that really works. So what steps would you take to try to implement voucher systems and charter schools, et cetera? Well, that's a wonderful question. One of the data points that cheers me is there are now more homeschoolers than charter school kids in the United States. That's interesting. We run homeschool camps at Coolidge. So I... I, th I think the education system, the education monopoly is a little more fragile than it looks because there's creative destruction happening. People know that if the Common Core and the SAT and the AP are all run by four guys, there's a problem with that, right? So, so um, one of the areas that I have not explored but I'm talking off the top of my head is a form of alternate testing. And, and some schools are doing that. They use international standards to get around U.S. standards to, to remind people, but um, any support for alternate education in the cities is great, because otherwise they won't learn to do math. Uh, any support through history, I mean, that's what, why did I go off and do history instead of, I don't know, you know, other things I could have done, just write more journalism, is because I really believe in Coolidge conveys a lot of information to young people. There was another time. They did it differently then, partly because they learned because they went bankrupt. I mean, they, they weren't inherently more virtuous than we are. So they had in their genetic memory bankruptcy. And well, eventually we're going to go bankrupt. So, uh, but, but, so I, I really like history. And uh, it's kind of frustrating. I was talking um, 
The Republicans and the conservatives don't always do this well. The, the Ken Burns movie about the Roosevelts, which is really one about monarchy, which is disturbing. The Roosevelts are royalty. Great. Uh, that's a problem. And then two, basically deifying interventionists. Because TR and FDR were in. How much did that cost? $20 million. Who Who worked on it? Thousands of people. How much was it loved? Very much. Was it good? Yep. So... Uh, where are our commitments to movies like that? We have people who are, have the, our donors like instant videos. Right, I love instant videos too. They go viral, great. They give $100,000 to get an instant video. That is not going to compete with the Ken Burns PBS commitment. Will PBS air our movies? You know what, they might. I think they will because they're afraid of looking too biased. And when a Republican comes in, they'll be caught. Right now, they're way too biased because they want balance. Some of them actually want balance. But uh, for some reason, perhaps impatience and anger, the, the investors on the free market side tend to like instant result, to dollop out money to little projects cheaply. Um, and therefore, we don't have um, art that competes with the art uh, on the other side. I, I just don't see our, even our Republican candidates pushing for vouchers and charters as much as I would like to see them push relative to our children and our grandchildren. I, I agree. And, but um, the ones who push for, st the problem is also that's a federal thing. And the pro we have an education department. That's not great. You know, if you do it from the top, uh, they should just, some of them, they're real federalists, therefore that having happening at the state. Barry can add that to his list. Right, can add that to his list, right? Yeah, okay. Hi, I'm Sean Hernandez. I was involved in policy debate for nine years, and uh, I'm in the PhD in economics at UC Santa Barbara. My question is about the wage rigidities theory, which you touched on briefly. You said that during the forgotten Great Depression, wages fell. Um, was this due to just the market, or were there policies put in place to cause wages to fall? And also, was there deflation at the same time? Yes, there was deflation and disinflation. Um, to, uh, it, you don't even have to say policy. So it, I mean, you want to always imagine you're an employer. You have an employee you, you like. It's costly. Turnover is costly. It's quantifiably costly. You don't want the employee to go away. You can do, um, if, if you are free to change the wage, you go to the employee and you say, you, I don't have enough money for 40 hours, you can work 35. Or you can work 40 at a lower wage right now, and when the economy gets better, I'll pay you more. That freedom is what was removed starting around 1930 with all these. So um, it's the natural human thing to do to keep someone rather than to lay them off. It, uh, it's just so, uh, I think, you know, when you want to say, why did we all of a sudden do this? One thing, the UK did it, right, first. The, if you have a look at the governments of the UK in the 1920s, that's where they had the dole. The dole became a pejorative word because the relative difference between the dole and uh, the wage was too narrow. And everyone knew, including Franklin Roosevelt, who didn't use the word dole for that reason, that the dole in England was too attractive relative uh, to the wage, or that uh, unions pushing wages up too was a problem. I mean, all this mix, they had an awareness of all that. Uh, then um, what we don't have now is we don't think from the point of view of the individual employer enough. 
Um, there's a guy named Mark, his name is Koyama, who I like very much too. I met him at Brown, but who worked quite a lot and the, 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 on this. And the thing about Britain, um, which is an even better example um, of wage problems, is they had double-digit unemployment for two decades, which I, I had forgotten or never knew because of messing around with the labor market. So I think it's just natural for an employer to try to keep good people. Uh, and we, what's perverse is, is these rigidities. I'm so excited about Ohanian's book. But I had, you can see it in his essays with Harold L. Cole from Penn, where they're going. And they try and do it in a macro framework. They're not doing it as Austrians. So it'll be interesting to see where it comes out. Tell us. Tell us the five best things about Calvin Coolidge. Oh, five best. Okay, uh, he cut the tax rate. Uh, he he was very good on this issue of saying no compassionately because he said no all the time. He was Mr. No, right? No, no, no. Uh, when, uh, didn't talk, um, but he said, "Well, I want people, the government, to save so people can have more for themselves." He understood the true meaning of property. Per, he said, personal rights and property rights are the same thing. Um, another thing that he did was he vetoed a lot. He said, it's better to kill a bad law than to pass a good one. Another, I mean, if you go to Coolidge, you're going to find one poem after another. It's unbelievable. He's better than Robert Frost. Um, <laughs> Robert Frost just some Coolidge derivative, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he, he said, uh, men do not make laws, they do but discover them. For, interesting. Another good thing he did, well, he cut the deficit. Uh, wait, well, he cut the debt. I'm sorry, we had no deficit. He cut the debt. Um, overall, by the end of Coolidge, the debt was down from the war by one-third. So they managed their obligation. And the last thing he did... The most amazing thing was, as you probably know, in 1924, Coolidge was elected on his own. He came into the presidency because the president, unfortunately, passed away. But in 24, there was an election. And Coolidge, uh, there was a third party, a Ross Perot party. That was the La Follette Progressive Party. And they did fairly well in the election, in, at least in numbers. They got 17-some percent of the vote. And usually, when there's a third party, um, the Republican Party, Coolidge's party, does not win, right, Bill Clinton? Uh, but Coolidge took an absolute majority, beating the Democrat, John Davis, and the progressive combined in, in terms of votes. So the Republican Party really loved him in that intense way. His coattails were so long, it, they had room for everybody to pile on. And yet, in 1927, Coolidge decided not to run again. Were the, was the Republican Party grateful? No. Did he have any more friends? No. Was he lonely and sad? Yes. But he decided not to run again. And um, I, I, I commend his autobiography to you because he says it right there. He said, uh, the country does better when the government changes from time to time. Change in personnel. Maybe two plus terms is too long. And that it might be number six, but that is the best thing about Calvin Coolidge. His understanding that he was not a great man, he was just a man, and that uh, government is service. We have time for one or two more? Uh, yeah. Uh, 
I'm also from the People's Republic of Vermont, Milton Eaton, and Coolidge is also my prime hero. But when they had the floods of 27, Coolidge was president, and he did not take on as a new federal responsibility to solve the disasters in the states. And of course, after that, I don't think we've ever had the federal government not become the major supplier, the, the free money from someplace else that everybody takes. And I just like your comments on that. Oh, oh, thank you. Do you know my comments? I've, I've written about, um, thank you. Uh, or he's giving me, he's throwing me a softball. <laughs> the, the, uh, they had a Katrina, and I've talked with President Bush about this. They had a Katrina, which was the flood in the South, the great flood of the Mississippi in 1927. And some of you have read, there's an excellent book about it. Uh, and it was terrible. And many people died, and I think, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres in the South of the United States were affected. And the water was like a wall. And, 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 and the president, that was Calvin Coolidge, did not go down. He allowed the Red Cross to go down. He sent Herbert Hoover, that busybody, the Commerce Secretary down. But he didn't go down. Why? Because there was a lot of infrastructure legislation that he wanted to veto. And he thought if he went down and showed sympathy, well, then his veto would be overridden because Congress would see you as a weakling, right? I mean, this is hard. Uh, so he didn't go down. And um, the, the people were quite bitter about that. And they said, well, if this happened in Vermont, he would sure go in his state, right? He doesn't care about the South. And then there was a kind of divine retribution. It did happen in Vermont. The same year, there was a terrible flood. And how many covered bridges? Hundreds of covered bridges. And Vermont was, is a challenged state. It's not particularly arable. It's full of rocks, right? That's why they, uh, and it, you, you can't get around a lot of things. And they built a lot of railroads. And the railroads weren't doing that great. But the roads weren't good anyway, right? And all of it was washed away. The Christmas trees were washed away. And it was so sad. The lieutenant governor died trying to get to his car in the flood. There's that nice book about it, Troubled Waters, by our, your fellow Vermonter. And what, cool, what was Coolidge going to do? He hadn't gone to the south. Coolidge did not go to Vermont. Can you imagine President Obama not going to Chicago? He goes to Chicago for the Olympics, I think, right? I mean, to right? He didn't stand up for, because he felt it was inappropriate for the US president. So he sent, he did try precisely, exactly what he'd done for the South. He sent Herbert Hoover. <laughs> People were kind of sarcastic about Hoover. He, I think they said, um, he came, he saw. No, he came, he observed, he left. Right? Yeah. Right? What it, who, goodwill. Uh, and Vermont was, was truly suffering. There's these famous quotes, Vermont will never come back again. Um, uh, but there's also a, a few articles that report what Vermonters said. Um, he can't do for his own what he doesn't do for others. They, they understood that. Or some of them did. And what's remarkable, because Vermont was a place where a lot of people would like to be on welfare as per the request of Temple University student, was a year later when he came back finally and gave a little speech called Vermont is a state I love. He was followed with great love everywhere. So that would have been, I guess, autumn 28. They understood 
about independence. So we want to give Vermont that credit uh, from that period. It's an epic story because you have to imagine the restraint it would take not to go home because of some vague principle, federalism, presidential restraint. That's another reason he's great. Yeah. We're going to have to end on that story also. Okay. Thank you very much.